The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Thursday, December 28th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Let's go to the great state of Alabama, which is trending away from being the state of Alabama, just as Missouri was having a moment, seems to have been dragged back into Missouri dumb. So Alabama might be peeking out into the sunlight, especially with today's development, as Alabama Public Radio reports. Moore made a last-minute effort to postpone the certification by challenging the results. He hoped to buy time for an investigation into what he claims were voter irregularities. A federal judge in Montgomery rejected Moore's attempt. State election officials say they found no evidence of voter fraud. The final margin of victory was just under 22,000 votes. Under 22. That's how Roy Moore likes him. Way under 22. But it is good that a judge has made this ruling. Because if we know one thing about Roy Moore, it's that when the judiciary weighs in against him, he accepts that decision with equanimity and forbearance. Dash of humility. Actually, he doesn't. Turns out he doesn't. Did you know he hasn't officially conceded the 2006 or 2010 governor's races yet? And who's to really say he's wrong? Maybe he was governor and has been governor all this time. Maybe he's been inviting the Alabama Crimson Tide to visit him in the governor's mansion, which is to say his own house, and it's Nick Saban's fault that they haven't been showing up. Maybe he's been doing signing ceremonies, giving away pens, but the things he was signing were just, you know, different commandments, what not to covet, some parts of Leviticus. But, you know, they were written in different handwriting, so he thought it was novel. Maybe the guy's proud of his record for never having raised taxes or passed new regulations as governor of Alabama in 2006 and 2010 and since then. Of course, it would have been hard if Roy Moore had won this ruling, not that he admits that he didn't, but it would have been hard had the judge agreed with him because then he'd have to serve in the Senate while still being governor, wouldn't he? And then he couldn't give that classic speech, you know, I'm not a career politician. He'd have to concede, I happen to be two career politicians concurrently. The basis of the lawsuit, by the way, was that turnout was too high. He cited that. He said turnout was higher than they said it would be. (laughs) Wait a minute. I thought that no one would care. I thought that we were supposed to be gently persuading certain parts of the population not to show up. Voter ID laws, don't they do anything? Look at black turnout in my election. Much too high. I was promised suppression. None of that happened. I shall sue. Oi, as one of Roy Moore's lawyers would say. So thank you, Doug Jones. Not only did you beat Roy Moore, you beat back the 19th century. America and Alabama thanks you. On the show today in my spiel, the worst op-eds of 2017. But first, are you like me? Do you like to think... Do you like to think about thinking? Do you like to think about thinking about money? Have I got the guy in the interview for you? Dan Ariely is a professor of psychology and economics. He's been on before as the author of the New York Times bestselling Predictably Irrational. And his new book is called Dollars and Cents, not written with a C, The Essence, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. Here's Dan Ariely. When I was thinking about a good price to pay for Mr. Pibb and Red Vine, Dan Ariely was thinking about my thinking about the price. His new book, written along with Jeff Chrysler, is called Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. 
If you know the author of Predictably Irrational, you kind of sense what's going to be inside, and it's all there. Dan Ariely, welcome back to The Gist. My pleasure. Good to be back. Of the heuristics or of the mistakes that you write about in your book, I mean, there are so many to pick, but I'll let you pick by talking about which one did you find yourself naturally falling into the most before you really read the research about it? So, so I'll tell you about the one that kind of surprised me the most, but and in some sense it's the most trivial, but took me a long time to, to realize. Mm-hmm. So, so think about a thousand years ago, how did we save? Basically with goats or livestock. Mm-hmm. And one of the nice things about saving in goats is that you can come home from work and you can see how many goats your neighbor has. And you can see how many goats you have and you can compare who has more goats. And we are competitive people. And we would compete on anything as long as we could see it and we can measure it. But then we invented money to replace goats and we invented digital money. And now we don't see saving rates anymore. So imagine that life has two activities, spending and saving. And spending is something that you were very, very aware of. We see exactly what our neighbors are spending and we want to compete with them on that. And saving is something incredibly private. Nobody else knows how much we're saving. And is it any wonder that we pay too much attention to spending and not enough attention to this incredibly important activity called saving? Well, the Social Security Administration will issue everyone and mail to everyone a notice about how much they've accrued which is, I think, part of the uh, idea of nudging people towards more responsible saving. Are there other things that we could do as a society with uh, low, low costs? Absolutely. The thing about Social Security is that they remind us, but it's not really a call for action. Right. So one thing is, imagine somebody is going to a new job, and they have to decide how much money to put into 401k. And every dollar they put into 401k is a dollar less that they get to bring home. That means that Part of the money is invisible, the mm-hmm. money you get to put into savings. And part of the money, the one you, the part you bring home and buy toys for the kids and food and so on, it's something that is visible. What we did was very simple. We asked people to call their significant other and talk about that amount. How much money should you put into 401k? And what happened is it became visible, not forever, but just for the discussion. And that was long enough to get people to put more money away into 401k. So that's one example. Another example. This was an experiment that they got kids on the day they were born and they randomly opened to half of them college savings accounts, randomly. And then when those kids were four years old, they went to test their cognitive and social skills. And guess what? The kids with college savings accounts had higher cognitive and social skills. Hmm. How can that be? Do the kids know that they have college savings accounts? Of course not. But their parents know, right? And think about what happened to parents who once in a while get a statement that says, this little kid has a college saving account. They read to them a bit more. They buy them a few more books. And you don't have to do lots of things to make it work over time. Now, you write about in the book just ways to, uh, tips, essentially, for people to be better consumers. And you write about the concept of evaluability, uh, being able to evaluate the relative value of something. And an example, really compelling example, a study you cite is people were asked in isolation, how much would you pay for a 10,000-word dictionary with a perfect cover? How much would you pay for a 20,000-word dictionary, in other words, twice as good a dictionary, with a tattered cover? 
and the clean-covered worst dictionary sold for more. But once people were told about the other dictionary, not only did the 20,000-word dictionary with the tattered cover sell for more, it sold for more than any of the other dictionaries in any of these experiments. So I just wanted to put that experiment out there. We're not very good at evaluating how much something is worth, but it seems to me that the people who are good at this are the people who make prices. This probably did not come as a revelation to the guys who program Amazon, but it might come (laughs) as a revelation to the people who shop at Amazon. So our consumers losing out in if there is an arms race in uh, staying ahead of the people who do the pricing. So one thing is, you know, even even the wonderful people at Amazon sometimes do things that they don't they don't predict. Amazon free shipping. They did free shipping and they didn't realize. But in France, instead of uh, the engineer that implemented free shipping, decided instead of implementing free shipping to make it at the price of the cheapest stamp. So it was almost free, but not really free. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, what they saw was that in the whole world, purchases went up dramatically, not in France. And only when they looked at the details, they realized that free is very, very different than 12 cents, Mm -hmm. right? But you're absolutely right, that the world is trying to tempt us to do things that are not in our best, best interest. There's a principle in behavioral economics that we make decisions as the function of the environment that we're in. One environment will make one decision, we're in a different environment, we'll make a different decision. And now think about it, the environment that we're in, who has our long-term best interest in mind, right? Who wants us to do well? Who cares about what will happen to us in, in the long term? And the answer is basically nobody, right? Maybe your significant other, maybe a religion and so on. But, but mostly, everybody's trying to tempt us. Everybody wants a piece of our time. Everybody wants some of our money. And you know what? They control the environment. A supermarket can get us to behave in ways that are not ideal for us, but much better for them. Do we as a species in general, or maybe Americans, whoever uh, was studied, do we undervalue time or overvalue it? I mean, taking an Uber rather than walking is a way to save time. Are we putting the right value on that? Or will we actually pay $2 less for something that winds up costing us $3 in just the time we wasted to get it? So in general, time, much like money, is all about opportunity costs. Mm-hmm. Right. Every time you spend uh, time on something, you you don't get to spend it on something else. But the opportunity cost of time is very unclear. Right. If I ask you now, please uh, help me. Uh, I don't know. Do a podcast for my new book. It will take you an hour. And let's say you agree to do it. What exactly are you not going to be able to do? It's it's very diffused. It's very unclear. And because of that. Uh, we tend to undervalue our time because we don't know exactly what we're giving up. It's it's so true. My mom always wants to buy me a Christmas gift, but she doesn't go all. She buys me eighty percent of a gift, meaning I'm going to buy you tickets for a show, but you know I don't know when your dates are free, and I don't know uh, I don't know which show you want. So she winds up saying, "I'll give you a gift certificate, or I'll give you the money for it." And I just always say, "Mom, it's just." It's a better gift for me not to have to put in all this work for a show that if I really wanted to see, I'd be out seeing it anyway. This both makes me the worst son in the world (laughs) because she's trying to be generous, but also I think kind of a rational actor. 
Yeah, I mean, p- part of it is that your mother doesn't understand gifts. <laughs> what your mother is trying to do is she doesn't want to just do direct economic exchange. If she did, she, you know, she could just deposit money directly into your checking account. Right. What, what gifts are about are about improving the social relationship, right? They're about getting the, the other person to know that we, that we care about them and doing something that would show caring. And by giving you something like this, your mother is showing actually that she is not caring all the way. <laughs> it's so true. So the other day I was thinking about this, you know, just in general, reading your book, How Much Is My Time Worth? And I remember a couple of years ago, I was making $100,000 a year, and that works out to $50 an hour. Now, it's not perfect because it may have been the case that if someone said, hey, I'll pay you uh, $50 to work an extra hour this week, I'd take it. But let's just say I was at an equilibrium where the $50 an hour for my 40-hour work week was exactly where I wanted to be, and it gave me all the leisure time or non-work time that I needed or wanted. I would have to say that if someone said after, and let's say I also budgeted in eight hours sleep a night because that's what I need. If I got seven hours and someone woke me up and said, hey, do you want to sleep for an extra hour? If so, it'll cost you $50. I would definitely say no. I would definitely say that is lazy. I shouldn't do it. But I guess I am being a little bit illogical there, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, thing, the thing about it is there are many things that if you notice the cost of, t- of time, mm-hmm. it would actually drive you crazy. So, uh, so I teach at Duke. Imagine that we took tuition. We divided by the number of hours that the students are in class. Yeah. You know, which probably is not the right way to think about tuition, you know, because they pay for all kinds of other things. But let's say we did this and we had the meter like a taxi meter in the classroom that showed them every minute in the classroom how much it cost them. The experience would be terrible, <laughs> right? It, it would be miserable. It would be miserable for the professors too. Um, because the reality is that there are some experiences you have that you don't want to think about, about their opportunity cost. Uh, I'll tell you one other thing about this. I, I did um, many years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I was an expert witness on some trial. And they paid me by the hour. It was a lot of money uh, by the hour. And this was during the summer, and I was uh, with my family in California. And all of a sudden, I could get hundreds of dollars per hour. And, you know, I started thinking differently. I said, if I work now for two more hours, I can buy my son a bicycle. Right. And if we go out to dinner, um, all of a sudden, this is costing me, you know, this amount of money because I could work for another hour. It was a short-term project, which meant I could, I could put a lot of hours into it. And, and it was actually a really unpleasant way to live because it was so clear per hour what were the consequences and the, and the opportunity cost. So thinking about opportunity cost in some ways is the only way to think rationally about money. Not It, it is. But thinking all the time in, about opportunity cost is certainly not a good way to live. In terms of the salary that we want or demand, I think that we often uh, think a job is good or bad and don't equate it to the salary uh, as much as we should. I'll give you an example. Working at uh, Dwayne Reed, I don't know if you have a Dwayne Reed down there in Durham, North Carolina, a CVS, a pharmacy. We don't, but I know. Sure, I know a pharmacy. Is, yeah. seems, like a, seems like a pretty bad job. But you know what? If it paid a quarter of a million dollars, not only would you say, oh, it's not a fun job, but it pays well, I think it would become a fun job. Like, there would be, not only would society treat you better, but there are enough fun aspects or interesting intellectual aspects of a really well-paid 
job at Dwayne Reed that actually makes that, would make that a better job. And the opposite side of that coin is one of these guys on Wall Street. I know some people are very oriented towards math and whatever, but if you were just paid what the Dwayne Reed guy got paid to do your stuff on Wall Street, no one would want to work, work at Wall Street. It's just not inherently that stimulating for most people. The thing about jobs, though, is that we've done all kinds of experiments in which we can take people who are making chips, computer chips at Intel, or doing all kinds of other mundane jobs, and by changing things like how many compliments they get and what is their relationship to other coworkers and how much autonomy they're getting and all kinds of other things, we can get the same people with the same salary to enjoy their jobs more. Mm. And, you know, in, in physics people have been searching for what's called the perpetual motion machine, right? Something that creates energy from nothing. And, and in human behavior, I think it's about motivation. So in the area of human motivation, there are ways to get everybody to be better off. Just sadly, people are often way too mechanical about how motivation works, and they're not looking for those opportunities to get everybody to be happier. We're not investing enough in the inherent joy from the work itself. Uh, In our final minute, I just want to ask, are there any of these mistakes we make, these uh, examples of misthinking about money that are very peculiar and particular to Americans? So far, we haven't found those. We actually find that when you think about the, the general approach that we have to do with money, how we think about opportunity cost and relativity and the pain of paying, People are similar the way the, the world over. The, the one thing that we do find that Americans don't do as much is because Americans believe more in freedom and individual responsibility, American parents very rarely tell their kids what to do. Yeah. So yeah. when you talk to uh, people in Italy, they tell their kids, a third of your salary needs to go to savings. When you talk to people in Japan, people say uh, this percentage has to go toward your mortgage. It's not so much individual mistakes, but as a general rule, I think Americans believe that each person should be able to make their own mistakes and their own decisions. And because of that, we don't have a lot of intergenerational transfer of wisdom, and everybody has to discover their own mistakes from the beginning. And, and some of these things might be okay, but discovering, for example, that you haven't been saving enough for retirement, it's a little bit hard to fix if you haven't done it in the right way. <laughs> so I think, I think it will be good for us to start giving our kids a bit more directed advice. Yeah, or, or a Japanese grandmother, one or the other. <laughs> yeah. Dan Ariely is, along with Jeff Kreisler, the author of Dollars and Cents, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. Thank you. Thank you. And now the spiel. In our tradition of best of 2017 lists that react to a lot of the other best of lists out there, I'm going to give you the gist's worst essays and op-eds of 2017. Not the worst that we've done. We were all C minus and above. I'm talking about Fs, true failures. David Brooks of the New York Times, he gives out the Sydney Awards for the best essays and op-eds named after the old Tony Randall sitcom Love, Sydney, I believe. I may have that wrong. I don't know. So here's my methodology, because if I really cast the net wide for truly the worst op-eds, I'd have most of Medium and like everyone's Facebook posts and every tweet storm that Seth Abramson ever tweeted. 
So what I did is I narrowed it to the two newspapers I physically get every day, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And then I also had an honorary category for a a WAPO, a Washington Post op-ed writer. My first worst op-ed of 2017 occurred right after President Trump gave a speech to the joint Houses of Congress. Your first speech as president is not a State of the Union. So this was the speech where some foolish people said this was when he became president. And perhaps the emotional climax of that speech was when he singled out the widow of uh, slain Navy SEAL Ryan Owens. And of course, it brought everyone in the chamber to their feet. Ryan's legacy is etched into eternity. Thank you. But in an op-ed written right afterwards by Daniel Henninger, who knows some stuff about economics but isn't great on the politics, he wrote this. During the speech's most extraordinary moment, the tribute to Karen Owens, wife of uh, Navy SEAL Ryan Owens, one notable Democrat who refused to stand was Representative Keith Ellison. Here's the problem with that analysis. Untrue. Unfactual. Now, I know where he got it from, and I talked about this on The Gist. It just, oh, it was a bee in my bonnet. It annoyed me so much. It was a meme. It was a right-wing meme, and the Daily Blaze and all these other right-wing sites were running headlines and stories. Here are a bunch of Democrats who didn't stand to applaud Karen Owens. Henninger chose to only write about Keith Ellison, but he was wrong. He was factually inaccurate. Snopes went over it. There's ample photographic and video proof. Everyone stood when he talked about Karen Owens. There was a later part of the speech where he wasn't talking specifically about Owens, where most of the people in attendance stood. It's not discernible if Ellison, Representative Ellison, was one of them or wasn't. But he just got a fact wrong. It seems like it's a little thing, but it's not. Because if I start thinking of it, and even if you start thinking of it, if you read the Wall Street Journal, if I start thinking of it as a little thing, then I can see that the Wall Street Journal, which has an op-ed page, that says it's time for Mueller to resign. Okay, that's an argument I don't agree with and an argument that I don't think is compelling. If I concede, yeah, it's okay to lie and it's okay to print falsehoods and never correct them, then all I'm saying is the Wall Street Journal is in the category of Breitbart. And I don't think the Wall Street Journal's in the category of Breitbart. I don't even think their op-ed pages, their obviously conservative op-ed pages are in the category of Breitbart. So what I did, like a dork, or a romanticist, I actually emailed their version of the editor who oversees the op-ed page, and I linked to the Snopes article, and I said, it's just factually inaccurate that Keith Ellison did not stand. You should not let that assertion stand that Representative Ellison did not stand. And guess what response I got? Nothing. I got no response. So that's why it still stands as one of the worst op-eds of 2017. The second worst op-ed of 2017 was written by Mark Penn and Andrew Stein, and it was a call to Democrats to tack towards the center. I don't really know what this means. The center, the left, they're all kind of subjective. There are some parts of that argument that I adhere to. There are some that aren't. In fact, there was a lot in their particular op-ed that was just uh, misused polls and looking at straw men and making a case for an idea called centrism, not really attached to a bunch of policies that they should or shouldn't adhere to. At one point, the co-authors write, easily lost in today's divided politics, is that only a little more than a quarter of Americans consider themselves liberals, while almost three in four are self-identified moderates or conservatives. 
They should know, and I'm sure Mark Penn, who's actually good at his job, and I'll get to Stein in a second, they should know that this is extremely misleading. Pew did a study and found that Democrats are far more likely to describe their political views as liberal rather than moderate or conservatives. In fact, most of the Democrats who describe their views as moderate are blacks or Hispanics. White Democrats, half of them, describe their views as liberal. So it would be kind of odd for the Democratic Party to eschew liberalism based on this description or this label and based on recent polling, when all the polling shows that the Democratic Party, if they really want to be the Democratic Party, should embrace liberalism. Anyway, what the label is doesn't matter. It's uh, getting right policies, and I would assume that Mark Penn more or less agrees with that. I have no idea what Andrew Stein agrees with, because Andrew Stein, it is true, and they identified him as a former Manhattan Borough president and the New York City Council president, but Andrew Stein is something else. And this was recently revealed when he was invited to be on Fox News. But our next guest says it's time for his party to end the resistance and get on board the Trump train. Andrew Stein is a former New York City Council president, chairman of Democrats for Trump. He joins us now. Andrew, good to see you. Merry Christmas. almost. Merry Christmas. Uh, I want to start with that idea. Why have many in your party spent 2017 not fighting it out on taxes, not fighting it out on health care, but saying he's a bad guy. Let's remove him from office. Well, I think it's the Trump derangement system. I got a better answer. A better answer could be, well, it could be the obstruction of justice. There's that or maybe the Russian collusion or the emoluments violations every day, all day, or the increased possibility of nuclear war. Anyway, the Democrats didn't roll over on taxes or Obamacare. So that was a really weak premise. And let me also add that Andrew Stein, the president of Democrats for Trump and possibly the only member, he has one soundbite. And it's to say that Democrats are suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. And he screwed that up. It's a three word phrase. His answer out of the box, Trump derangement system. This guy should not be given the space to write an op-ed on what Democrats should and shouldn't do. By the way, two other things about Andrew Stein. One, dated Ann Coulter. Two, convicted of tax evasion. Not a great Democrat to be giving Democrats advice. My next worst op-ed of 2017 was in the New York Times last month, early last month, by a uh, professor named Ikao Yanka. It was titled, Can My Children Be Friends with White People? The answer really should be yes. And Ikao Yanka is telling the answer was more, well, Trump's a bad dude. He writes, I will teach them to be cautious. I will teach them suspicion. I will teach them distrust much sooner than I thought I would. I will have to discuss with my boys whether they can truly be friends with white people. His son, by the way, is four. I will teach my boys to have profound doubts that friendship with white people is possible. And his supporting evidence is that, well, much of white America voted for Trump. He points out correctly that America has a racist past, still has racist institutions. America tends to give lip service to reform, holds black people to an unfair standard. Yes, 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 that's true. We should uh, advocate for reform. We should stand against institutional racism. We should tell your black children they shouldn't be friends with white people. That's going to solve problems. He further writes, imagining we can now be friends across this political line is asking us to ignore our safety and that of our children, to abandon personal regard and self-worth. Throughout the essay, which is called, Can My Children Be Friends with White People?, he only talks about Trump voters and how 
Trump voters represent a uh, stab in the back or maybe a front to anyone who isn't a white American. Again and again, this is the question he wants to grapple with. It's some version of, can Trump voters have your respect? Can Trump voters be your friend? Can Trump voters really be thought to care in any deep way about you as a black person or your children as black people? But what the essay isn't is what its title says it is and what its conceit purports to be, an examination of the very provocative idea that maybe it's good parenting to not allow your children to be friends with other children of a certain race. Are are the four-year-olds your kids going to befriend? Were they swing voters from the Mesabi Iron Range of Wisconsin? Are they the former machinists from Western Pennsylvania who supported Obama twice but then backed Trump? Are those those four-year-olds? Without the gloss of the, well, what do I teach my four-year-old? Ooh, provocation. I mean, the questions are something to ponder. As black people, what do we think of white people now? But it's a question that's been pondered in a lot of other places in a lot better ways. I don't think it's interesting enough to be printed in the New York Times. The should my children be friends with white people? That's interesting enough, but you don't answer the question. You just leave it out there. It's like a ridiculous and I'm going to say racist ploy. And like so many of the worst op-eds of 2017, it leaves me a little poorer, perhaps a little stupider for having read it. And now an extra award. I have to credit Jonathan Chait, not one of the worst op-ed writers, good op-ed writer for New York Magazine, for alerting me to this guy, Ed Rogers. I don't think he's actually on the pages pages of the, of the Washington Post. He writes on their website. He's a contributor to the Postpartisan blog. Why? Why, I ask? He is a political consultant and a veteran of uh, Reagan and Bush White Houses. But now he's the chairman of the lobbying firm BGR Group along with Mississippi Governor Haley Barber. So he's a, he's a paid lobbyist. And what he does is he argues, for instance, that there is no collusion in the Mueller case. Mueller hasn't proved collusion, and Mueller will never prove collusion. Well, the fact that collusion isn't even a legal term might have some impact on if Mueller could possibly prove it. In one of his op-eds, this was after uh, Donald Trump Jr. went on Hannity to talk about uh, emails he got setting up a meeting between Russian agents and uh, his father or members of the campaign. Ed Rogers writes, Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz stated yesterday, quote, it is unlikely that attendance at the meeting violated any criminal statute. Well said, Mr. Dershowitz. Yes. What wordsmanship, Mr. Dershowitz, better than you, Ed Rogers, could have possibly come up with. Ed Rogers goes on to say, Trump Jr. went on Hannity last night to speak specifically about his actions. Granted, Sean Hannity is not always interested in giving a complete unvarnished account of what happens in Trump world, and his questions are softballs, but Trump Jr. made some important points nonetheless. And Ed Rogers sums up those points by saying, I don't think Trump Jr. went on national television last night and told a bunch of lies. Undoubtedly, the president's enemies will believe they are justified in feeling otherwise, but Trump Jr. has little incentive to do anything but tell the truth at this point. He goes over the fact that as of that writing, no one had been actually charged with a crime. And he says of Democrats and the special counsel, maybe they will get a break and someone will stumble into a crime during the investigation into the non-crimes from the fall campaign. Well, since he wrote that, General Flynn already admitted to a crime. Several others have taken a deal. There's a pretty strong case against Paul Manafort. And here's the last thing I'll quote. The quest for collusion is over. Special counsel Robert S. Mueller III's Russia investigation has not, 
revealed any collusion. Again, I must emphasize, collusion is not a crime, and therefore Robert S. Mueller III will never find it. And one thing that Ed Rogers never gets into, and the Washington Post never puts out there in the form of disclosure, is that a client of Ed Rogers' lobbying firm is Alpha Bank, the Russian bank Alpha Bank that has been reported to have a lot of dealings with the Trump organization. Whether it did or didn't have these dealings, how could you possibly assess an Ed Rogers column if you don't know this? Well, maybe you can assess it just on its face as a pile of caca. And that concludes the worst essays of 2017. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, the worst jumble player of 2017. Mary Wilson also produced The Gist. She's the worst political cartoonist of 2017. Over there, it's a big lazy dog, and that's Russia, and there's a baby wearing a crown labeled Smoot Hawley, and there's a chain bear, and it says the words tariffs. I am lost. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, he's the worst typesetter of 2017. It's in the family bloodline. His grandfather typeset that famous headline, Japanese bomb, Pearl Harbor, U.S. to enter World War I, continued on page three, and there was the second Roman numeral I. The gist, proudly named the worst correction of 2017. I'll read it for you. In the July edition of the summertime fun recipe section, what should have read lemon meringue instead incorrectly read three vials of strychnine. We regret the error. Oopuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.